see you. Brantford Marsalis is one of the most revered instrumentalists of the music industry. He spent four decades in the international spotlight, and now he's showing no signs of slowing down. A renowned saxophonist, Marsalis continues to cross stylistic boundaries while maintaining his creative integrity. The thing that makes it work in a country like ours that is so reliant upon songs and lyrics is you have to create like an emotional effect. I'm Eddie Robinson, and stay tuned as ICU chats unguarded with multiple Grammy Award-winning jazz artist and composer, Branford Marsalis. The Louisiana native talks candid about the motivation behind his music, his approach to confronting racism, and how he really feels about the future of American democracy. Oh yeah, I feel you. We hear you. I see you. Renowned instrumentalist and three-time Grammy Award winner Branford Marsalis has become a staple of the traditional jazz genre and continues to expand his career and skill sets as an acclaimed saxophonist, composer, band leader, and head of his own record label, Marsalis Music. He's from a revered family of musicians, including both his mother and father, as well as his brothers, Jason, Winton, and Delphio Marsalis. It wasn't until the 1980s that Branford would find himself on tour playing the saxophone with the likes of Art Blakey, and then later with artists like Lionel Hampton, Clark Terry, and Herbie Hancock. Right after he joined singer-songwriter Sting on his first solo project in 1985, he then formed the Branford Marsalis Quartet a year later with pianist Kenny Kirkland, Jeff Watts, and Robert Hurst. That particular lineup would go on to release four more albums, including I Heard You Twice the First Time, which won a Grammy in 1992 for Best Instrumental Jazz Album. That same year, Branford Marsalis became the leader of the Tonight Show band on the newly launched Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Louisiana, uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, Branford Marsalis and the Tonight Show band. This was right after Leno replaced Johnny Carson. But in 1995, Marsalis left the Tonight Show. He transitioned back into playing and performing as a solo artist. Plus, he's toured and recorded extensively with the Branford Marsalis Quartet with pianist Joey Calderazzo, bassist Eric Rivas, and drummer Justin Faulkner. The quartet recently performed here in Houston, but I see you, just so happened to be on Branford's radar and was gracious enough to spend some time with us virtually from his home in Durham, North Carolina. We're so grateful to have with us the legendary Branford Marsalis. Branford, thank you so much, sir, for being a guest on I See You. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. What's been your secret to longevity? I mean, you've been in this industry for four decades, multiple Grammy <laughs> Award winner, not only a much sought after instrumentalist, saxophonist, but a renowned composer, band leader, head of your own music label, you know, even mentor, educator. What has been your secret to longevity as a jazz icon? Uh, I don't know about the jazz icon. <laughs> There's no such thing, really. But uh, I, I, I just, I, I think when you're in the in on the art side of the business, uh, you have to dedicate yourself to the art side of the business. Yeah. And regardless of what the popular trends are, we can't really compete with that. Mm. I mean, just think about pop culture now and how many 60 year olds are making hit records, you know, and when you are lucky enough or fortunate enough or talented enough to make hit records, you should going knowing that there's a much like athletes, there's a very short shelf life for that. Mm -hmm. So I've always kind of taken the long view. I've worked with fantastic musicians who were, like Sting was a pop icon in the 1980s.
my career path has followed pretty much the same trajectory as his. I mean, he he just allowed himself to age and he worked on his craft and he still takes singing lessons. His voice is not very much far off from what his voice was when he first started in the business 35 years ago. He still sings those high notes, you know, not as high, but you, you, you take a long view to everything and you continue to try to improve yourself. You stay on the music side of the business and you let the popular side do whatever it does, but you don't allow yourself to become consumed by that side. You were born in the South, Brobridge, Louisiana, not far from where I was raised, out in Macomb, Mississippi. Oh, man, you, that's yeah. even better because... Oh. My, my, no, you got to hear me out on that. <laughs> my, 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 my grandfather was born and raised in Summit, Mississippi. No way. Right down the street from... McCall. That's it. That's it. And look, I mean, it, it along I-10 corridor as a kid, we would travel out to Mississippi from uh, uh, from Mississippi to Texas, right. visiting family in Louisiana. And I remember seeing signs along the highway with that name. You know, how has being from Louisiana inspired you and your music as a performer? Uh, I, I think it's the, 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 the big thing. It's the big difference maker for me. Uh-huh. Especially. Uh, New Orleans from a, not necessarily from a cultural standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, Louisiana is certainly just different. It is. The the foods we eat and our cadence is a very much like a French slash African cadence as opposed to a British slash African cadence. The cadence is very different. Uh, The philosophical outlook is very different. And, uh, Growing up in New Orleans, the sounds, I mean, there's no other town I've been to in the world that has that many sounds. Uh, I mean, you know, if you if you were to go to like, you know, Cote, Cote d'Ivoire you could, or, or Cuba, you hear these fantastic sounds. Uh, Cuba is very similar to New Orleans, actually, because it is, I mean, wow. because you have this great folk tradition and you have people who are masters of these folk traditions and the offshoots, it is incredible how many offshoots to uh, traditional Cuban music there are. Yeah. Uh, you know, like there's the, the regular salsa bands and then there's the uh, the son tradition, S-O-N, and then there's the changui, which is over on the other side of the island near Guantanamo. And New Orleans has that same kind of thing with the Cajun music with country music, with blues, with jazz, with traditional jazz. With New Orleans funk, with R&B, I mean, there's all these styles that come out of the city. That's a long ass, domino. And they also have really great uh, youth orchestras in, in Cuba, and they have great youth orchestras in Louisiana. That's it. So, so you grow up hearing all these sounds, and I feel very fortunate to have, have grown up in a place where you have all of that stuff going on, and it's just our hair different than anywhere else, because <clears throat> a state like Texas also has all those things. It has great youth orchestra programs, great marching band programs. I mean, there's a lot of money put into the arts in Texas, and a lot of those guys and gals can really, really play. So, but but we have some some extra cultural goodies in Louisiana that other states don't have. It's I See You. I'm Eddie Robinson, and we're here with multiple Grammy Award-winning musician Branford Marsalis. He's chatting with us about his music, his life, and career from his home in Durham, North Carolina. We've created a series here at ICU that reflects on the past and explores the future of the commercial radio format known as smooth jazz. Um, We've invited guests like Gerald Albright, Brian Culbertson, vocalist Mesa, to share their views and stories of why they still believe in this style of jazz music and how cruise, touring, festival circuits, and satellite radio have all been their saving grace for sustaining the sound of smooth jazz. Do you think, Branford, that race 
has played a factor in why this particular format has sort of diminished from the mainstream spotlight, so to speak? I mean, there was a, there was a, a race dynamic to the entire style when it started. Uh, Everett wow. Harp is a good friend of mine. and I, Love and, Everett and, Harp. Yeah, right? Houston-born. And uh, because I was never really on that side of the business, I had a more... I saw it very differently than he did. And I would hang around some of those guys and there was always the talk of like having to make a, a type of record that would be played on the smooth jazz stations then, which was kind of, uh, well, yes. the Clear Channel had thousands of smooth jazz. And I just kind of said to them one day, I said, man, they're never gonna play your stuff on those stations, man. It just sounds too black. And you can't make it sound non-black enough to appeal to those guys. Like right now? No, I don't. I think that that whole thing's gone because, you know, Clear Channel blew up and that whole format blew up with it. But their target audience was was generally uh, whites who make $100,000 or more. And it wasn't really the idea of it as a as a music per se. It was more of a background to a lifestyle. And that whole thing blew up in the in the crash in 2008. And all those things are gone. So what's left are stations that play it because they dig the music. There's not really a commercial outlet to sell it the way that they were selling it back then. I just think that uh you know, as a guy who plays traditional jazz, I mean, we were kind of in the same boat. You have, you, I have, I have, I've long ago like suspended the idea of mainstream commercial success because mm. then you, there's a, if you, if you're aiming for that, then there's a winnowing of what it is that you do that cheapens it on both sides. Mm. And my whole thing with, with Everett was a long time ago, I said, man, get a band go on tour, take those beatings now and bring your music to the people because you don't want to be in a situation like radio, radio clientele is different than your clientele. That's right. You know, like the, the radio people basically turn on the radio and say, tell me what to buy and I'll go buy that. But if he had gone the way that like Dave Matthews went where he was, selling out the Roseland Ballroom in New York, 2,500 people without a record contract. It changes his relationship with that industry because he did pretty much what the Grateful Dead did. They went out on tour and developed their own clientele and fan base. So they weren't relying on radio to make them into anything. Radio would have been an added bonus, but not necessary. So I think that a lot of what, what Gerald and the guys are doing is the only way to really to, to really do it, to go out and bring the music to the people and not rely on those mechanisms uh, to make you into it. Because it's instrumental music. It's almost impossible. Kenny G is one of the few people to ever have any kind of super stardom on an instrumental level. And uh, whatever the reasons for that are irrelevant, you know, it's just because, you know, if you try to use race, it's like he's not the only white person who plays. And all those other guys couldn't do that. It's, it's, it's a thing. On some level, I think Kenny G might have disrupted it or destroyed. No. No? Kenny's just okay. one man. If, he, if, if okay. he poisoned the water supply with a drug that forced people to go like zombies and go buy his record, then yeah, okay, you're right. It's Kenny G's fault. But... The reality is, is that everybody makes records and some people believe in their record as product and some people believe in their record as music, but you guess. And when you guess right, you have this 10 year career that is just absolutely unbelievable and fantastic. And uh, it's a mistake in the instrumental music business to believe that you ever can. It's, it's a mistake in any business to believe that you have a trend that you know can work because if you had a trend that you knew could work, I mean, record companies would only make about 10 records a year, save all that money and make a fortune. But they are constantly guessing. Again. Everyone is guessing. And for me, I had a certain level of certainty about what I was doing and the work that I needed to do to 
ensure the outcome that I wanted. But it was always never going to be this mass marketing. I never saw a world where people would be lining up to hear jazz music like that. So uh, the fact that I'm able to do it as, as long as I am, I feel lucky and I'm very surprised. But I've always kind of focused on on the work. Even when I was playing with Sting, I was focused on the work. I wasn't trying to, you know, be a part of the stars. I tried to stay away from that because it didn't have anything to do yes. with me. And I knew that when that tour was over, I was going to go back to just playing music. Yes, sir. And so, so I always, I never really desired that kind of attention. And okay. I think that worked to my advantage. So you can manage the ebbs and flows of a career in, in, in instrumental music, because you, if you don't have an expectation that people should like you, then you just, you just roll with it. You just work on getting better and you, and you, you take the lumps. Coming up, more with multiple Grammy Award-winning jazz musician Branford Marsalis as he shares his approach to racist incidents and attitudes. What were some unique ways his father taught him and his siblings on how to deal with discrimination? Plus, we'll hear his thoughts on how he's been able to tackle these notions of misinformation in this climate of social media and what kind of an impact he thinks it's had on American history. Stay tuned for some unguarded insight and perspective from Branford Marsalis that just might surprise you. I'm Eddie Robinson. Don't move. A captivating second segment of ICU happens right after this. If you're enjoying this program, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast, I See You with Eddie Robinson. You can hear all the past episodes and be notified when new episodes are released. Also, please take a minute to give us a review or comment. We love getting feedback from our listeners. We're back, and you're listening to ICU. I'm Eddie Robinson. We're speaking with jazz icon Branford Marsalis. He's been a staple in the traditional jazz sector for four decades, touring the globe and recording some incredible music. Notable releases include his work in composing music for the Emmy-nominated documentary Tulsa Burning, the 1921 Race Massacre. His work on Broadway has garnered a Drama Desk Award and Tony nominations for the acclaimed revivals of Children of a Lesser God, Fences, and A Raisin in the Sun. And on the big screen, his credits include Spike Lee's Mo Betta Blues, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, starring Oprah Winfrey, and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, starring Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman. In addition to his music, Branford continues his work as a philanthropist. After the 2005 devastation of Hurricane Katrina, he, along with his friend Harry Connick Jr., developed Musicians Village, a residential community in the Upper Ninth Ward of New Orleans. A centerpiece of the village is the Ellis Marsalis Center for Music, named after his father. The center helps celebrate the music and musicians of New Orleans, as well as provides services to underserved children, youth, and other musicians from surrounding neighborhoods battling poverty and social injustice. We continue our chat on ICU with the legendary Branford Marsalis. 
After the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, there was a sense of social reawakenings and racial calls for justice and inclusion, and they sprouted all across the nation, even the world. African Americans found themselves reflecting on issues and grappling with past incidents of discrimination that many white Americans in particular are suddenly realizing its impact on us, mentally, physically, emotionally, financially, you know, all parts of our lives. Brantford, if you could share with us a story or a narrative that to this day still resonates and hits home for you where you've experienced some form of racism, some form of discrimination, perhaps it continues to bother you or leave a certain tinge of residue in your mind when you think about its impact on your life, perhaps even on your career. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I have plenty of stories, but that was never my reaction. Cause you know, my mom was like a, a racial justice warrior and she mm -hmm. saw injustice everywhere. And my dad was kind of like, you know, Hey man, you know, crap happens, hmm. you know, it's way better for you than it was for me. And it continues to get better. So work towards change instead of like dwelling on these things. And I have a couple of brothers who identify with my mom's point of view. And I think it's more genetic than anything else, but I definitely have my dad's point of view. I mean, but yeah, you know, and you're walking, you know, and, and uh, you, 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 we live close enough from school to walk home for lunch. And we are immediately assumed to be truants. And the cops would get out the car and say, you know, where are you jungle bunnies going? Stuff like that. And you say, I'm going, I'm going home to go have lunch. And they say, well, I don't believe you. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, man, you want to follow us? Or are you getting smart? You know, it's the, you, yeah. I remember those things. Okay. I remember walking, walking through a, a department store with used records and having a security guard push me against the wall, accusing me of stealing records that the store didn't even sell. Mm. But my father just had this thing where he says, uh, especially to us, because we were pissed off. We were kids, man. We were like rebellious in nature. And he would sit at the table and hear us complaining. And he says, man, y'all sound like, like, you know, everything was just until like last week when this happened to y'all. Maybe you need to see the world in a different way. I mean, you, you know, he's the person that would say things like, uh, you know, oh man, this cat, you know, this cop stopped me and blah, blah, blah. He said, oh, really? Medgar Evers got shot in the back for daring to register black people to vote. Let me say this to you. I had one merchant to call me and he said, we don't need nigger business. So let us not trade at these stores. Let's let the merchants down on Capitol Street and the man who killed him is still in the town and everybody knows who he is and nobody does anything about it. And you're complaining about what? Wow. You know, he would always say that. Yeah, Four sure. little girls got blown up in the church. Sure, sure. A black person was hung once a week, every week from 1890 to like 1950 something. So what were you saying? It's like, oh man, he goes with that crap again. You know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I have these things that happen to me. Sure. But I didn't grow up with a presumption of fairness. I grew up with a presumption of unfairness. So when the society was not unfair, I was pleasantly surprised. And, and when it was unfair, you know, like one of in my conversations with modern conservatism, because it's I, I we we do it an injustice to 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 like compare what's going on now to to a lot of other people who don't roll like that who might not have the courage to speak out. That's right. What I noticed, I mean, they would say things and I would just start laughing, and that would drive them crazy. Because that's when I realized that a lot of it is just a bunch of angry people. My my father used to say this thing. I just remembered it. My father would say, oh. "Man, if I if I had a magic wand, I'd make all the black people and all the Jews disappear from America." And I said, "Well, man, why would you do that?" He says, "Because it would take about two weeks before the clan started turning on each other, because they got this rage that they can't let go of. So if you remove, like, if you remove the the, the subject of the rage." The rage isn't gone. So what are they going to do with it? So you leave for two weeks, let them kill each other, then come back. And I'd like, man, that's crazy. It's misdirected. Crazy. It's misguided. But, but, but as I get older and older, I realize you yes. have these people who have this rage. That's why you can't quell it. That's why this idea that, you know, they say, you know, like they blame 
they blame one man, they blame the former president for like engaging in misinformation. Yes, misinformation, sir. it's like cons. You know, and he he was a con man in New York when we lived. Everybody knew, that, you know, Donald Trump had like the con thing going on where he was, this is the greatest building in the history of building. Come to my university. I, we know more than any university in the world. I mean, he has like the con thing, you know, and and he probably believes it. But it's like, that's how he rolls with everything. You know, yeah. he scores a seven in golf. He calls it a five. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it, like this one caddy told me, he said, the trip about Trump is that when he says it's a five, you don't even see that look on his face like he's lying. He is convinced himself. Convinced. Five. So I'm like, OK, he's got that thing. But, you know, cons can't work unless there's a willingness to buy into it. There you go. Bernie Madoff worked because there were people who were naive enough to believe that there was a world where you could never lose money in the stock market. It's just they just I'm going to guarantee you have a 35 percent increase every year. Now, that's mathematically impossible. But if you have this little greedy man in your heart, you say, man, this this is too good to be true. OK, here's 90 million dollars. I mean, you know, yeah, the con, the guy was terrible. He was a con man. But, you know, so back to the point at hand, you have these people who have all this anger and this rage and they need to blame it on somebody. And That's all it. he did, the straw man is them. That's it's it. their fault. That's it. Go get them. That's you know, it. they're horrible. And if you got rid of whoever them is, now they got to find a new them. Right. There always has to be a them to justify the rage. Right, right. And because I was not one of those people who was like prone to, to anger in most situations, I, I became more thoughtful about it and more observant of it. It's ICU. I'm Eddie Robinson, and we're here with multi-Grammy award-winning musician Branford Marsalis. He's chatting with us about his music, his life, and career from his home in Durham, North Carolina. And you know, Branford, you know, you make an interesting point because you know I've always thought that had I lived back in the '50s and '60s, you know, with separate but equal Jim Crow, I know I'd be dead. You know, because of so much that went on during that period. I mean, so much has changed now in this world, but things can get better, right? We now live in a, in a in a world where they don't happen. Like when I hear some people saying, you know, I'm afraid to have my kids go out. My my father was never afraid for us going out, and it was way worse in the 1970s than it is now. Right. You know, it's just, you know, mathematically, anything could happen to you. You get hit by a car, you could hit, get hit by a bus, but the odds are really against anything happening. Okay. You know, and uh. It is getting better, even though it might not feel, which is why you have this aggravated opposition. Mm-hmm. They are opposed to the, to progress, mm. to national progress, because somehow national progress seems to cheapen their perception of their own power and strength. Mm. So you hear phrases like, this isn't America anymore, or America is racist against white people. I mean, on the face of it, that makes no intellectual sense at all. But if you try to think of it in a different way, I can understand why they might feel that. Yes, sir. Because there were privileges that were afforded to people. You're having a bad day, you know, call somebody a racial epithet. And, you know, everybody says, oh, come on, man. You know, he's just blowing off steam. You know, there's like the, the guy who. Uh, the 14 year old black kid in suburban Detroit was trying to get home and knocked on their door because he missed the bus and he was lost. Mm-hmm. And the woman said, why are you trying to rob us? And her husband came out with a shotgun and shot at him and tried to kill him. The man accused of firing a shotgun at a 14 year old boy is charged with attempted murder. The 53 year old claims he thought the boy was breaking into his home. But the prosecutor says security video tells a very different story. I mean, the cops would tell you like in, 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 in back in old, oh man, come on, you know, man, he's just trying to protect his home. But this man got arrested. I don't know what happened after that because I didn't follow the story, but, that, but I saw the story and I'm like, man, that guy would have never got arrested 20 years ago. The judge set a $50,000 cash surety bond with a long list of conditions. And, and and some people are upset at the fact that people like that get arrested now. The society wow. has changed to such a significant degree that it, it, they don't have a sense of their own power. Now, I empathize with that. I don't sympathize with it, but I empathize with it. And I understand why they would feel that way. But I am not interested in the country reverting back to the way that it was so that they can feel better about themselves. I don't know how to help them, but 
you know, this, this like, you know, we have to stop the disinformation. I mean, there you go. The history of America has been disinformation for since, since the inception of the country. I mean, you know, like right now you have people who will say, uh, like the, the, the South starts the Civil War. Some states didn't even put Abe Lincoln on the ballot. And he won anyway. So they say, well, this isn't our country anymore. So let's leave. And this war starts and the South loses. By 1890, the narrative in the South was that the North started the war. The war was suddenly called the War of Northern Aggression. Like in 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 all of the in all of the stuff that happened after that, you know, the 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 reaction to the overreach of Reconstruction, the 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 you know erection of Confederate general statues all over the South streets named after slave owners, all of this stuff was a disinformation campaign to kind of like redefine what the truth was. Mm-hmm. The South was fighting for its freedom. Slavery had nothing to do with it. And then you say, well, let's let's start looking at the articles of secession from every state that seceded and see where slavery comes up. Second paragraph. Second paragraph. So some of my, you know, colleagues, they're not really they're colleagues, they're associates, acquaintances. Well, man, why are we reading these? So it's like this common thing, you know, in in families. It doesn't forget like strangers. It happens in families. If there's an uncomfortable truth, they're like, man, why are you bringing that stuff up? It's very uncomfortable. Why are you bringing that up? Let's change. So what we have is this uncomfortable national dialogue where a third of the country don't want to talk about it. You know, and it's like the last analogy I I used used with these guys because now they see me and they smile polite. They don't want to talk about it no more with me. Totally get it. Totally understand. And I said, like, you know, like, when the when the when the Nazis went on their you know, campaign of killing Jews, they were like, "This is great for the world. We're doing this for the people." The Thousand Year Reich, blah 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 blah. Yeah. And when the Americans were coming in from the West and the Russians were coming in from the East, what's the first thing that they started to do? They burned all of the papers. They tried to blow up the crematoriums. Now, my thinking is that if you believe in the rhetoric, if you believe that. This is a great thing you're doing. Wouldn't you just wait for them to come and say, look at what we did for you. Look at this great thing we did for you. You should be thankful. No, of course. Thank. Because it was all disinformation. You know, so January 6th shows up and then guys, we did a great thing. And then people start getting arrested and they start deleting their Facebook accounts. Well, I thought you did. A, I thought you did a great thing. Why are, you, <laughs> why are you deleting your accounts? Why are you, you know, let's not talk about that. Change the subject. Oh, that didn't really happen that way. It's like, it's not new. We like to have these conversations saying, you know, the country has never seen this before. We've seen this two or three times in the history of the country. Yeah. We just That's don't have enough historical perspective. So I know I got long winded on this, but the point is, is, yes, I have seen things that have happened to me, but I also see the progress. Yes, sir. I don't hold on to the I'm lucky. I think some people would say I'm not lucky. I don't hold on to that. They're not like terror points that are in the recesses of my mind. And I know people who are like that. They can't let these things go. My mother couldn't let any of it go. But my dad was like, look, man, you're going to eat yourself up holding on to this stuff. I love that. You know, that's the whole, that's the whole, you know, point of Christian forgiveness. Coming up, we continue our chat with the legendary Branford Marsalis. Did you know he used to be an actor? Well, after the break, find out what he thought about his role in a Spike Lee film back in the late 80s called School Days and how an agent at the time pushed him to consider Hollywood and dive into acting. Plus, what does he think about the future of jazz? How does Branford Marsalis create that authentic emotional effect on listeners through his music? And then later, we'll learn a bit more on why he's such a strong believer in artists who do not follow the trends of the music industry. I'm Eddie Robinson. Our final segment of I See You in just a moment. We'll be right back.
If you're enjoying this program, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast, I See You with Eddie Robinson. You can hear all the past episodes and be notified when new episodes are released. Also, please take a minute to give us a review or comment. We love getting feedback from our listeners. You're listening to ICU. I'm your host, Eddie Robinson. We've been chatting virtually with multi-Grammy award-winning instrumentalist, Branford Marsalis. The Louisiana native is here on ICU to talk about his life, his career in music, and we've even had an opportunity to hear his perspective on how a misinformation campaign of our American history, according to him, has redefined what truth and democracy has meant for this nation. Share your thoughts on our show page, I-S-E-E-U-Show.org. You can also reach out and send us a comment on Instagram. We kick off our final segment with Branford Marsalis with a look back at the character he played in a musical comedy drama written and directed by Spike Lee entitled School Days, a film released back in the late 80s that takes an interesting look at college life at a historically black university. Branford plays the character Jordan, one of the friends of a student named Dap, who's played by actor Lawrence Fishburne. Dap asks his activist friends, including Jordan, to head to the administration building on campus to be a part of a protest rally regarding the school's involvement with apartheid in South Africa. Although Jordan and his friends are supporters of the cause, they go against Dap and want to complete their college education and be able to get a job. So yeah, sorry about the bed, homeboy, but check this out. We got a question for you, man. What's up with your cousin Half Pint? Yo, man, why is he pledging? Oops. Mm. Yo, man, you want to take your last breath? I'm sorry, man. But seriously, man, what's up with the pint, man? <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, who's going back to the administration building with me tonight? Not the kid. Uh-uh. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought y'all was down for the cause. Hey, you my brother, but damn, man. You should lighten up on that, Mr. Malcolm. Seriously. But what about the parade? Somebody coming to the parade with me, maybe? Hey, I'm down, man. But not tonight. I got to see some butt shaking. You know? Right up. I'm with him. That ain't no joke, man. I can't what about do the rest of y'all? Yeah. Tomorrow. All right, bet. Enjoy yourselves. i see you all tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. sharp. That's cool in the gang, brother. Later. You really influenced me, along with a lot of cast members of the film School Days. Oh, I remember you back in 1988. Man. And that was fantastic. This is not the question, but I mean, I absolutely love you and that whole character. The whole film in and of itself was so powerful because it blatantly talked about race, skin color, skin tones. How we as black people even grapple with discrimination amongst our own people. But I did want to have the opportunity to say thank you with you and the NBC sitcom A Different World for inspiring me to go to an HBCU for my undergraduate degree at Prairie View A&M. So thank you for that. Well, it was my pleasure. Well, I went to Southern, so I went to Southern. Yeah, see what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So, I was, so when Spike told me about it, I'm like, you're going to pay me to do the same dumb stuff I did in school? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can roll with that. That was awesome. It was it was such a great movie. It was such a great movie, and I loved your act. Were you oh, trying to be an actor? Just, I mean, Mike what, asked me what to do it. What was going on there? And uh, I guess okay, a lot of people liked it, and and uh, yes, you know, yeah, like <laughs> this guy, this agent came up and said, you know, yeah, man, you should think about being an actor. You the music thing, you have to let that go. You got to move to L.A. And I'm like, man, I ain't letting this go. They're right. I mean. You can't practice and play music and go on auditions. It's hard to do all those things. So, I mean, I thought about it and I said, no, I'm just going to stay right over here. That was fun. I enjoyed that. I'm stay right over here. There you go. Stay stay in your lane. Stay in my lane. Um, This is a question that we always ask our guests. Of all the accomplishments you've made as a performer, as a composer, band leader, instrumentalist, you know, since you've been in this industry for decades with an iconic family legacy in jazz and musicianship, Branford Marsalis, what life lessons have you learned about yourself 
thus far? Man, it's really got nothing to do with uh, music. We still talking about life lessons. I mean, even better. Yes. You know, how to be a man. I learned that, you know, how to stand up for yourself and, you know, how to see the world and not be so jaundiced about it. I learned a lot from my kids. Mm. My kids kind of kept me straight at times when they say, man, you, you're being an ass, dad. They wouldn't say it that way, but it was clear. I had to kind of look in the mirror and like rethink my position on, on some things. How uh, many do you have? Four. I have four. The music, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a riff. It, it, I think instrumental music, like the thing that makes it work in a country like ours that is so reliant upon songs and lyrics is you have to create like an emotional effect with the sound. You have to create it. You have to have, you have to create a sound that has an emotional effect on listeners. And that's a, a, an acquired skill. That's not something that's natural, especially like we don't have the, 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 the strength of the backbeat or playing songs that are intimately familiar or playing chord structures that are friendly. So we have to create an aura, an emotional aura. And my life has kind of informed that, but not in the way that you would talk about it in a generic way, like something tragic happens and then you write a tragic song. It's, it's the amalgam of all the little tragedies in your life or the little sadnesses or the little joys. And you kind of develop this way to create a sound on your instrument that can reflect ha happiness or sadness. That's like old people stuff. That ain't, that ain't young people stuff. The young people stuff is playing as fast as you can and playing and you kind of grow into this situation musically the same way you grow into it. If you're lucky, you grow into it in your life. As you age, you develop a certain type of wisdom and Sure. You're, you're less likely to, well, there's a lot of people my age who are following crowds, but you're less likely to follow crowds. And uh, they all go, they all go hand in hand in hand to me. It's like this, okay. much like any relationship you have with a person where you're so close that, you know, you can understand each other just with a look or a glance or two or three words. That's kind of what, 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 you know, music is like I have with my with the guys I play with, we have like a tacit understanding about uh, the power of sound to create an emotional effect on listeners. And that's like at the top and everything else, all the extra details. That's just music stuff that we need to know. But audiences don't need to know any of it. You know, and uh, there's like a thing that I understand about dealing with people. I like people. You know, I'm not suspicious of people. I've had, you know, negative experiences, but I don't allow them to cloud my faith in humanity. You know, it's, we have a, a, a situation right now where there's like 30% of the country that's quite extreme, but that means that there's 70% that is not. Now, and, and so I choose to focus on the seven, not while keeping an eye on the 30, I'm not naive enough to believe that everything is, you know, unicorns and rainbows, but I'm not gonna, tailor make my life as some kind of reaction to extreme reactions on another side. I mean, they, they're doing what they do. You know, they need a place to live too. This is America. They got places they can live and propagate their foolishness. And, you know, we can't do nothing about that. So we can spend our time trying to affect change instead of reacting. I don't, I'm, I'm more of an, an, a person who believes in action instead of reaction. I'm not trying to react, you know, that whole, if you do this to me, I'm going to do this to you. I'm more like, you know, now at my age, I'm more like the MLK thing. It's like, this is what we're going to do regardless of what you do. Like it. So that's more, that's, that's kind of it. That was a hard yeah. question to answer, man. Don't ask me nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, audio, I've always told this, this, this is our mantra because we use music sonically with the conversations. Audio is not meant to be heard. Mm -hmm. Audio is meant to be felt. Right. And that's what I love about your music and what you've, what you've been able to do for this industry and for this genre, we thank you tremendously in your, in your heart of hearts and in your mind, what do you think the future of jazz music will be about? Sound like, look like 2023 and beyond. What do you think? It's always about the players. Okay. Everything is about the players. So who's coming down the pike? I don't know, but somebody will come. They always come. Okay. But, uh, you know, it's never really about, you know, whatever the, 
public trends are. You have to have musicians who believe and they just do their thing. And, you know, you, you bring the people to you instead of, you know, saying, tell me what you like and I'll do that. You say, y'all need to be liking this. And then still enough people go, you know what? He might have a point. That is kind of good. Oh, I mean, I'll check that out. Oh man, I didn't think I liked that. You know, that, that to me is, is, is more, you know, those are the kind of musicians I look forward to, sure. to being around. Like the other thing yeah. will always be around. There'll always be people who will treat it like a business and I'm not mad at them. Hmm. You know, I'm friends with some of them guys, you know, it's like a business to them. I mean, we, what are the trends? Let me go capitalize on these trends. Let me do this thing. And it's like the jazz cruise. I, I think that the original guy who started it was Dave Koz. I could be wrong, but I think Dave started that whole thing. That was a very, very smart business move. Interesting. Yeah. That wasn't a, a musical decision. I mean, and, and I respect that, you know? So it's not like I'm saying, you know, those guys are bad and we're good. Sure. It's just, you know, I... You know, I, sure. I just, you know, the, the music is going to be about the players. There you go. And they're coming. It's ICU. I'm Eddie Robinson, and we're here with multi-Grammy award-winning musician Branford Marsalis. And you're a mentor. I mean, you're a mentor. I mean, you, you're an educator for those who are listening to this conversation. And if you can provide them with some advice, especially in this world of digitization, especially in this world of social media, and there are young artists, performers, even in junior high and high school who want to be the next Branford Marsalis. What do you tell Lord, them? They got to do better than that. Oh! They got to do better than that. <laughs> no, it's just, the whole, the whole thing is, and all of the music that I've studied, all of the really ingenious stuff is kind of like musicians who like push at the edges of traditional things. Whereas in, in our modern times, the whole idea of genius is like bucking the tradition, blowing up the tradition. You can't really do that. That's why the trends keep changing so rapidly. Everybody's in search of the next new thing. And sometimes the best new thing is the old thing mm-hmm. with, a little, with a little spice added on top. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you listen to somebody like you know, Prince, I was just talking about that with with one of my former students who actually played with Prince in the last band he had. Okay. But like Prince was a musical historian. You could hear it in the music. You can hear it. You can totally hear it. And then, then there's other people who were not, and they were very successful for a little while, and then they would disappear because there was no density to the sound. But there's a density to his music that comes from, you know, like a, people would say, oh, man, Raspberry Beret is like a Beatles tune. I'm like, yeah, but check that out. He knows how the Beatles sound. He can create these sounds. He can create the James Brown sound. He can create all these sounds because he knows how this music sounds. He has done his homework and studied. And that gives him a certain level of longevity. I think they are vicariously living through these image changes. You know, at at the heart of the matter, though, is the music. You know, I I am a musician. Um, I don't sample, (laughs) you know. If you listen to a song like Purple Rain and then you listen to a song like 1999, they don't even sound the same. That's true. You listen to Purple Rain, you listen to 1999, you listen to Sign of the Times. They don't even they don't even sound like the same song because he has so many sources that he can draw from because he's a traditionalist. Whereas the, the, the modernists tend to only know how to do one thing and they do that till the well runs dry and then they get kicked out and get replaced by another one. There you go. So they're both okay with me. Everybody's got to choose their path, but I'm always a fan of the people who choose the traditionalist road because I think there's more longevity to it. What's your greatest fear? I don't have none really, okay. to be honest. And then I know it's weird because, but I just don't. Yeah. They, they, you know, I, I, I definitely am not afraid of circumstances that are out of my control. You know, it's just like. It's like you got a lot of people claiming religiosity. I mean, that's one of the central tenets of, of religions across the continent is like, you know, crap is going to happen to you. <laughs> and how do you deal with that? You know, so it's just like people say, you know, I'm scared of flying. I'm like, OK, yeah, I understand. But, you know, are you OK with flying? I'm like, I don't admire it, but I believe that the people who fly these planes are very qualified. And if it's something bad happens, 
it's kind of like it's out of my control anyway. Mm. You know, it's out of my control. I'm not going to fly. So you get in a car accident. I mean, it's not you can't control these things. So I'm not going to spend my life trying to not live out of like a fear of death or fear of whatever it is. I'm just going to go out here and you know, they say, hey, man, you know, we got a gig in Kazakhstan. All right, let's go. Let's go. There's somebody out there that will dig it. You know, oh, but ain't you worried about terrorism? No, not really. I mean, Syria. OK, yeah, I probably am not going to be going there. OK, yeah, there is a concern there. And I, I'm not suicidal, but I can't use that smart. As a pretext to avoid okay. traveling and meeting people and cultural experiences. And so That's I don't really yeah, I don't have I don't have I don't have a fear. I don't have a fear. You know, it's just, you know, yeah, I don't have one. Sorry. I love it. Grammy award winning, multiple Grammy award winner, instrumentalist, musician, just phenomenal. Branford Marsalis, thank you so much for spending time with us here at ICU. It was a pleasure, Eddie. Good talking with you, bro. Our team includes technical director Todd Holslander, producer Laura Walker, Editors, Mark DeClaudio and John Mitchell Good. ICU is a production of Houston Public Media. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen and download your favorite shows. I'm your host and executive producer, Eddie Robinson. And I feel you. We hear you. I see you. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.